Well, good morning again. On this Veterans Day weekend, those of you in Skagit, glad that you've joined us, and those at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, and those watching online, it's good to have you with us. There is an article that came out about two and a half weeks ago, and I'm pretty sure this is not fake news. And the reason I'm pretty sure it's not fake news is because it was covered by CNN and Fox. So both of them covered this, which makes me think that maybe this one has uh, some some validity to it. The AP and, and everyone covered this. And it was a story about an auction of a handwritten note from Albert Einstein on happiness. This is a picture of the note. Um, that's the picture of the note. And, uh, and a little bit of a backstory. Um, in 1922, Albert Einstein was in Tokyo. It says Imperial Hotel of Tokyo. He's in, in Tokyo uh, preparing to receive the Nobel Prize for Physics. And as he was in this hotel, the bellboy brought his luggage up to his room, and he recognized he had no cash to give him a tip, so he decided to give him a life tip. And he wrote him this note uh, about happiness. It's in Germany. He wrote this note as a tip for this young bellboy, and he gave it to him, and it's reported that when he gave him this note, this tip, he said, hold on to this. I'm kind of famous. Someday it may be worth something more than the tip that you would have gotten monetarily. So the young boy takes it. So this is 95 years ago. Two and a half weeks ago, this handwritten note comes up on the auction block, and the auction house estimated that it would go for between five dollars and $8,000. So they started the bidding at $2,000. Well, a couple of individuals, I don't know who, got into a bidding war. And for 25 minutes, continued to outbid each other. And when the gavel came down, when the sold uh, was, was declared, this note went for $1.5 million. $1.5 million. Would you think, what in the world is so important on this note that someone would pay $1.5 million for it? So the interpretation of the note is this. This is what Einstein gave to this bellboy. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. Now that's a good tip. That's good advice. The irony is that most people who live a calm and modest life don't have $1.5 million to spend on anything, let alone a scrap of paper that's 95 years old. But whatever, you know, whatever makes him happy or her happy, whoever bought it, it's theirs and, and now they're happy. And the whole thing of, of this advice on how to have a happy life, that's some good advice. Happiness, I mean, that, the whole thing of happiness is woven into the very fabric of our country, the very framework of our country on July 4th, 1776, when we adopted the Declaration of Independence. The one line that most people are familiar with out of that document, the one line that some have memorized or know words about, the one line on that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That this, this document says that our God, the creator of the universe, has endowed upon us his right to pursue happiness. And that is a, such a broad statement because the pursuit of happiness, the path to happiness, is, is dramatically different for everybody. What brings you happiness might be different than what brings you happiness. And your pursuit of happiness might be different than your path to happiness. It might be different to mine. But we continue to pursue this path of happiness because deep inside, not only do we feel like it's our right, we long to be happy. And when we're happy, when we achieve that, when we're on that path, we sing these songs of happiness. Have you ever thought about how often singing is equated with happiness and even songs about happiness? I mean, from way back, happy days are here again. Anyone remember that song from the 1930s? 
All right, yeah, some old people there. So, or, or, or maybe you remember uh, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans singing, Happy Trails to you. Listen to these guys came in on their horse. Happy Trails to you from my era. Sunday, Monday, Happy Days. Yeah. Eee. All right. So, or maybe a few years ago with, when Bobby McFerrin was singing, you know, Don't Worry, Be Happy, or uh, just recently, Farrell or Pharrell or however you say his name was talking about if you're happy, clap along. If you're like a room without a roof, I don't even know what that means, but I'm clapping along because I want to be happy and this is the truth. So we sing this. And is it just this pop culture? James, the brother of Jesus, wrote these words. Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Great advice. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. There's this singing that happens when we're happy. Now, what's amazing is with Einstein's quote there, with the fabric of our country, the Declaration of Independence, that document from a few years ago, even James's words, what's interesting to me is that it seems like sometimes... Sometimes in the church, we've come to this conclusion that happiness and spirituality are mutually exclusive. And, and, and I think there's some reasoning why. I think I can understand some of the reasoning why. Part of it, and I get this, is that we want to shy away from a shallow theology that if you come to Jesus, your life will be trouble-free, you'll never have difficulties. I mean, we covered that extensively in the Hope series. Life is filled with hardships and troubles. We understand that. Sometimes it's this, this desire to, to stay away from, from a faulty theology. And the faulty theology is this, and I've heard this before. This idea that, that God just wants me to be happy, and that phrase has been used to justify and to rationalize uh, behavior and relational behavior especially that is far from what God would have for us. I've heard this before. When someone is leaving a spouse for a younger, richer, stronger, more pretty, whatever individual, and the, the rationale is, God wants me to be happy. And then we come back, and I believe this, that God is more interested in our holiness than our happiness. And I believe that's true. I mean, as parents, we know this is true. We're more interested in our children's character than their comfort at times, and so we want to develop something deeper. We get that. We understand that God is more interested in our holiness than our happiness, but sometimes, as pastors, as counselors, as, as well-meaning Christians, brothers and sisters, we take it a step further, and we basically say this, God wants you to be holy, not happy. Like, like you can't be both. Like never the twain shall meet. Like they're diametrically opposed. You get to choose do you want to be a Christian or do you want to be happy? Now, now think about this, and, and give me a little bit of latitude. What I'm going to tell you, part of it's biblical, the rest of it is biblical. Okay, so the Bible kind of implies that children were attracted to Jesus, that they came to him. They weren't scared of him. The mommies didn't have to say, go to the man with the 1980s feathered hairdo, you know, that kind of thing. You know, that children actually came to him and that he would also encourage them. Like when the disciples would, would send them away, say, no, 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 let the children come to me. And, and this is where it gets biblical. This is my part. Can you imagine that time when Jesus has the children gathered around? And he's like, he's going to talk to these kids, and they're all there. And the adults are there, but the kids are there. It's like, do some of you remember growing up in church where they had like the children's sermon in church? Like where all the kids would come to the front and they would give them a little sermonette before the real sermon happens, or not the real sermon. I mean, you know, like, okay, you know what I'm talking about. They do something creative with the kids and then bore the adults. That, okay, so, so Jesus is here with these kids. And all these kids gathered around, and he's just saying, you know, this is wonderful. And he says, okay, kids, I'm going to teach you a song, and you get a clap. Here's how it goes. If you're happy and you know it, knock it off. 
if you're happy and you know it, knock it off. You know, if you're happy and you know it, then you're going to burn in hell. If you're happy and you know it, knock it off. I mean, can you imagine Jesus doing that? And yet sometimes we get this idea that you can either be Christian, follow Jesus, be spiritual, be holy, or you can be happy, but you can't be both. And I think maybe we threw the happy baby out with the shallow theology bathwater. And some of you will push back right now and say, well, Bob, it's more about joy than happiness. I know. I taught you that. I preached that sermon. I get it. And I agree. Happiness is based on happenings. It's based on circumstances. It comes and goes. It can be taken away. Joy is foundational. Joy is an attitude. Joy is a choice. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. I get that. And if you ever had to choose, shall I have joy or shall I have happiness, go with joy every time. But do we have to choose? Is it an either or or can it be a both and? The psalmist writes this. The psalmist writes this. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. May they be happy and joyful. That maybe it's not a choice. Maybe we have joy to sustain us through all the days, but maybe happiness isn't such a horrible thing after all. Jesus preached the most powerful, most memorable, most sustainable sermon of all times. I mean, as a preacher, I get excited when you remember seven days later what I said last week at a sermon. I I just get pumped about that. Jesus preached a sermon. 2,000 years later, people are still remembering it, memorizing it, studying it, quoting it. I mean, this this is an enduring sermon. Most famous sermon of all time. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You can find it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7. Preaches this sermon, and it's an interesting thing. It says, when he looked at the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began teaching them, saying, and the first word out of his mouth, the first word he says of this most memorable sermon that's been quoted for 2,000 years is makarios, makarios. And he says it nine times in the opening section of his sermon. Makarios, he says, are, are the poor in spirit. Makarios are, are those who mourn. Makarios are the meek. Makarios are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Makarios, makarios are the merciful. Makarios are, are the peacemakers. And on and on, nine times, he used this word makarios. The very first word, and emphasized over and over again as he starts this incredible sermon. This word makarios, most often translated in our Bibles as blessed, can also be translated happy. It can also be translated fortunate, lucky, to be envied. So Jesus starts off this sermon, and from the very first word, he says, hey, let's talk about happiness. Let's talk about this path to happiness. And what's amazing and very true to Jesus' character and the way that he always operates is that Jesus, when he talks about the path to happiness, talks about one that's counterintuitive and even paradoxical. Because see, in our understanding, in our perspective, in our thinking, we think, well, this is going to bring happiness, and this is the path to happiness, and this is what we ought to do to be happy. And Jesus comes along and says, well, actually, it's just the opposite. If you'll do this and follow this path and go this way, then you'll find true happiness. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, blessed, makarios, happy, how fortunate, how unbelievably happy, here's the path, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to ask this question, and don't be too quick to give a Sunday school answer. You have to ask this question in your mind. Do I 
really believe that Jesus knows more about being happy than I do. I mean, you have, and, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you just automatically say yes. Think it through. Do I really believe that Jesus knows more about happiness than I do? If you come to the answer of, yes, I actually do believe that, then the only proper response to believing that Jesus knows more about the path to happiness than I do is following that old hymn is to trust and obey because there's no other way to be what? Happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So today what I want us to do is that I want us to take a look at this this path, and we're going to be doing this for the next three weeks, this path to happiness, and I want to look at what Jesus says about the path to happiness. Here's my desire, is that today in this this time together, I want to approach things from a very rational, logical uh, point of view. Not emotionally, I don't want to manipulate, I don't want guilt. I want us to, as it says in Isaiah, come let us reason together. I want to talk through some things and just have you think about this logically and see if this doesn't make more sense. On top of that, where we are going to end is with a very simple but profound statement that Jesus made but we're going to take the scenic route. That means we're going to be kind of meander, kind of like if you've ever taken the road to Hana. We're going to be taking a little bit of a long scenic route to get there. And if you're like, I don't want the scenic route, why don't you just get to what Jesus said? It's because I'm not Jesus. Shocker, I know. So if you don't want to take the scenic route, go ahead and take a little nap. Have someone wake you up when we get to that bottom line part. We'll let you know when that is. All right? So that's what we're going to do. So if we're going to talk about the path to happiness and what Jesus says about the path of happiness, I think it's most important that we start with what most people would equate with the path to happiness. Most people would say, this is the key to happiness. Even if we wouldn't say it out loud, in our mind we're thinking that. That most people would say, if we have this, if we do this, this is it. And here's the correlation that most people have. It's with happiness, with wealth, all right? And we're going to use wealth in a very generic, broad sense. Wealth can be the money you have, the amount of money you make. Wealth can be the stuff you own, the vacations you take, the car you drive, the shoes you wear, the purse you have with you, whatever phone it is that you've got right now. All of this falls under the category of wealth. And this I know for a fact, that when we think this is what is going to bring happiness, this is the key to happiness, whether you have a little wealth or a lot of wealth, whether you're a college student deep in debt or whether you own multiple businesses and have millions of dollars, to ask how much wealth would make you happy is the same answer for the person who's deep in debt and the person who has millions of dollars. And the answer specifically is more, just a little bit more. Whether I have nothing or have everything, how much would make me happy? More. It's interesting, in a recent book called The Science of Happiness, uh, a, a A psychology professor from Amherst College named Catherine Sanderson said this. We always think that if we just had a little bit more money, we'd be happier. But when we get there, we're not. Indeed, the more you make, the more you want, the more you have, the less effective it is at bringing you joy. But we always want more. One author referred to this as terminal acquisition. We're just plagued with this. We just got to have more. Now, we know, you've heard, money can't buy happiness. You've all heard that line. But I would guess the majority of you sitting here today, though you've heard that line and you've even said that line, there's a part of you that wants a chance to prove it wrong. 
Like, let me be the test guinea pig on this one. Give me all the money in the world and let me see if I can be happier. And if not, then you're right. And, and we'll call the experiment good. I mean, you've seen the picture. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy bacon. And they're about the same thing. Yeah, here, here's the truth that we all know. Because we have seen people who have a, a lot of wealth but they don't necessarily have more happiness. Their marriage is a mess. Their kids are entitled brats. They're self-medicating. They're, they're a mess relationally, emotionally, spiritually. Their, their whole life is a train wreck, but they've got the wealth. Conversely, we've seen people who have very little, and yet they seem so happy. Their family loves being together. They vacation in a tent in Cleelum, and they love it. And they're laughing and they're making memories and their marriage is strong and their kids are well. Now listen, I'm not saying that wealth guarantees that you're going to be miserable or poverty guarantees or living in a tent guarantees that you're going to be happy. What I'm saying is wealth does not guarantee greater happiness. Greater wealth does not guarantee even more happiness. And here's the crazy thing. We get on this, this death spiral because deep inside we long to be more happy and we're convinced that more stuff, more wealth, will bring more happiness. And so in pursuing more wealth, more stuff, we actually sabotage the success of what we really want in the first place. Because in going after all that stuff and trying to acquire all that stuff, we actually negate and take us farther away from happiness, which is what we want. And it just keeps spiraling around. So let's just think through this, just logically, logically, okay? What are these things that we think are going to bring us happiness, but then it actually works against that goal? And the whole thing is, is partly fueled by, by discontentment, discontentment. You know, like we're, we're just, we're not satisfied. And discontentment is fueled by awareness and comparison. It, it really is. We're aware of some things where we compare. In fact, I made a little rhyme you know, when I'm aware and I compare, I end up in despair. You can quote me on that one. All right. But it's an awareness thing. Because have you ever experienced where something's working just fine, and then you're aware that there's a newer, nicer, shinier, faster, smaller, bigger, more powerful? That phone is working fine. The texts are going through. The pictures are saved. And then this comes out. And now you're aware. And there's a discontentment with this stupid old phone. And this happened for some of you last week. And it happened in church for some of you last week. Because I told you about Festool power tools. And until last week in church, some of you were perfectly satisfied with your craftsmen's saws and drills. And then you found out about the Mercedes-Benz of all tools. And now, and there's a discontentment with this. I mean, think about it. Your refrigerator's fine. The food is fresh. It's frozen. But then there's that Bosch refrigerator that not only talks to you, but it makes your smoothies for you. And suddenly there's this discontent. This happens to me every time I get an REI catalog. I look through it. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. I have to have that. I don't even backpack. I mean, why would I want that? I don't need it. But, I, but suddenly I'm aware of it, and it brings about this discontentment within me. The other one is comparison of what I have and what they have. And, and honestly, while there might be a little bit of this, yeah, we don't compare ourselves to the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos and those kind of folks. Most oftenly, it's what so sociologists and psychologists refer to as the similar others. 
People that are in our station of life have our similar education in the same industry and especially in the same neighborhood. These are the people we compare ourselves with the most, and they're the ones that cause the most discontentment. I'll give you a, 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 um, a hypothetical situation of a reality. In the city of Bellingham, in Bellingham School District, the average median pay for a, a, a teacher is uh, roughly $56,000. Let's hypothetically take two teachers in the Bellingham School District, and let's say that they're not the median. Let, let's say they make 60 or 62,000, doesn't matter, arbitrary number, but they, they're above average. They both make the same amount of money in the same occupation. One of them lives in a, just a normal middle-class neighborhood. One of them lives in an upscale neighborhood. It is a fact that the one who lives in the nicer neighborhood, though he makes or she makes the exact same amount of money, is less happy. Because every day they're confronted with a comparison. Every day they see what house they have. Every day they see who's mowing their lawn instead of having to mow it themselves. Every day they see what they're driving in. Every day they see what their spouse had augmented, enhanced, cut off, sucked away, or whatever it might be. And there's all this comparison that goes on, and so they find themselves less happy. Here's what I'm asking. Let's just be logical. When have you ever in your own life or ever observed in someone else's life seen someone who is plagued with discontentment, and yet they're incredibly happy? I mean, just logically, discontentment takes us farther away from the very thing we want. That's why when Paul would write to young Timothy, he would give these incredible words of wisdom. He would say, godliness with contentment is of great gain. Like Timothy learned this whole thing. And when he writes to the church in Philippi, he says this, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned, and that's a key, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He says, my contentment is not based on my wealth. It's not based on what I drive, what I wear, where I vacation, what my house is, what my income is, what my savings is. That's not it. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's a path to happiness. John Ortberg, in his book, you know, Everything Goes Back in the Box, talks about this, and he tells about a situation where he went on a kind of a private retreat to a monastery. And there the, the brothers, the friars, the monks, whatever, they were the priests, whatever, showed him, he lived a very simplistic life, showed him to his quarters. There was just a cot and a wash basin and a towel. And, and the, uh, the, the monk, the brother said, I hope your stay is blessed. And then he was getting ready to leave, and then he, Ortberg says, this man said to him, let us know if you need anything, and we'll show you how to live without it. <laughs> that maybe you need to learn that you don't really need those things. And in that, past, that section, Ortberg says, we have to learn this statement that it could be worse. So when you get in your car, and it's old, and it's clunker, and it smells like fast food, and you see that brand new Tesla go by, you just say, it could be worse. You know, when you go home and the, the doors are not right and the ceilings aren't as high and the appliances don't talk, you just say, it could be worse. When you take out your flip phone, okay, forget that one. When you go to church and your pastor rambles on and on, you just say, and when you wake up in the morning and you look over at your spouse, don't say it. Whatever you do. 
See, this discontentment that's fueled by our desire, if I had more, then I'd be more happy, actually takes us farther away from happiness. Do you just see that logically? Here's another one. It's closely related, and it's greed. Greed, and, and we rarely see greed in ourselves, and we, we think about everybody else has greed, but not me. Greed is this idea of more, 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 mine, mine, mine. That, that's what greed is. It's, it's this insatiable appetite for more and, and bringing it in as mine. And Solomon, many of you know the life of Solomon, very, very, very wealthy man. He decided that he would be the guinea pig to test this theory on can you buy happiness. And he just threw himself into it completely. Some of you know that in the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to this grand conclusion and he says this, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. This desiring for more. Uh, there's a, a professor named uh, Daniel Gilbert. He's a professor of Harvard. He wrote the book, Stumbling on Happiness. And he talks about the truth that to a certain degree, money buys a level of happiness. But then there's a law of diminishing returns. And he says, here's the example. If an individual, a couple, a family make less than $20,000 and they're always plagued with, will we be able to pay the rent? Will we have heat this winter? Will we be able to pay for our food? Will our kids be able to get an education? They're always gripped with that. We, will the car make it another year? If that person making less than $20,000 a year actually starts making $50,000 a year, their happiness level doubles. It does. He says money does buy a level of happiness. But what's interesting is if that person making 50000 a year then goes up to making 90000 or more a year, their happiness level just barely ticks up. That money buys happiness until all of our needs are met, and at that point, it really doesn't have the same return. And then it states that even if you go beyond that, sometimes the pressure and the negativity of living in those kind of categories actually work against and begin to drop your happiness down. It's what... It's what this, this law of diminishing returns happens to us when, when we get something, and at first there's this, this short-term burst of, oh, this is cool, but it doesn't last. It's just about the time the new car smell wears off and you're sick of this car, you're still stuck in the lease. You know, and, and just about the time that all this thing, you know, it's not as good anymore, you're, you're still making payments on it, and it just diminishes the excitement. It, it's what economists call the hedonic treadmill that we get something new and we're excited about it, but we get accustomed to it really quick. And so we have to get something else new. And so we're on this treadmill. And, and they would say, economists would say, the more you make, the faster this treadmill goes. So we go back to the mall to find something new. We go back to the car lot. We go back to the market. We go to, after more and more. And we just continue on in this insane journey when in our minds we know the last purchase, the last acquisition, the last car, the last phone, the last computer, the last pair of shoes. It didn't do it for me. What makes me think this one's going to? It's just crazy. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. In other words, greed comes in many shapes and sizes. There's not just a one size fits all. It's not just those people are greedy. If we're honest enough to look in the mirror, we'll find it within our own life. Be on your guard. Watch out against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So again, let's just logically think about this. Have you ever met someone who is greedy and extremely happy? Better yet, have you ever been honest enough with yourself 
that you spotted greed in your own life and said, boy, that greed really brings happiness to me. And yet, it's all because we think, if I get more and it's mine, I'll be happier, and that greed takes us farther and farther away from true happiness. And in pursuing all of this stuff very often, we come up with the dreaded one, and that is debt. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about debt. I talked about it before. I'll talk about it again. But we get enslaved and we get trapped in this debt. Proverbs says that the borrower is slave to the lender. And now we're stuck with this. It's out of date. There's a new one out, and we're still making payments. It's broken, and we don't even wear it anymore, and we're still paying interest on it. And it just takes us farther and farther. You, you see how this downward spiral, you see how ridiculous it is? But we're convinced, and we continue on, and we're discontent, and we're filled with greed, and we go into greater debt, all because we want to be happy. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, Makarios, you want happiness, a blessed life, fortunate, lucky, enviable life? Happy, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to twist Jesus' words to fit to my sermon, but one of, not the only, but one of the, the aspects of being poor in spirit is recognizing my dependence on God for everything. Recognizing my need for God for everything. Even if my bank account is full, even if my job is secure, even if the market is going great, that I still recognize my need for God. That I recognize every good and perfect gift comes from God. You know, what does it say in Romans 11? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Everything is from God. And I recognize my need on that. So, so again, when Paul's talking to young Timothy in this letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, read that on your own, by the way. The second half of it's great about money stuff. But he says, you know, tell those who are rich in this, in this uh, current age, which is really all of us. And by world, world standards, we are all very wealthy. We really are. And he says, tell them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who provides, richly provides us with all things. And then he says to them, command those to, to do good and to be rich. We say, yes, love the Bible. My new life verse, God tells me to be rich. Hold on there, Richie Rich. Be rich in good deeds. Oh. Why don't we get so enthusiastic about that? Be rich in good deeds. And then he gives the key. Then he points the way to the path of happiness. And he says, and to be generous and willing to share. That it's not all just about me, me, mine, more, get. It's about others, giving and sharing. Now, this is where you need to wake up the person that didn't want to take the long road. Wake them up now, because now we're coming down to the, to the, the, the deal. What we find is this, is that the path to happiness is really the path of generosity. It's the path of generosity. In preparing for this series, uh, there, there's a, such a huge field of study on happiness. And I did a lot of research. Uh, there's a book called The Paradox of Generosity. Uh, I, didn't, um, I didn't read this book, but I read an interview by the authors. The authors, there's a man named Christian Smith and a woman named Hilary Davidson. And from this, they, they got a grant or something. It was a part of uh, a thing called the Science of Generosity Initiative out of Notre Dame. For five years... These two individuals studied 2,000 
uh, constituents, participants, uh, people in this study. So five years, 2,000 people, unknown thousands of dollars that went into this. And their book then, The Paradox of Generosity, is their findings from this study. So I read this interview, and this is what they were so excited to say. After five years, 2,000 people, we've done this research. Here's one of our findings. Being generous makes you happier and healthier. Really? It takes five years and 2,000 people and untold thousands of dollars to come up with that? I mean, isn't that kind of what Jesus has been saying for 2,000 years, long before there was all the social science experiments, long before the psychologists and the books were written and all the surveys were taken? So 2,000 years ago, Jesus makes this very, very simple, profound statement. And here's what's interesting to me, that none of the gospel writers include this statement in their gospel. Matthew doesn't, Mark doesn't, Luke doesn't include it in his gospel, and neither does John. But it appears that the early church were all very aware and very familiar with this statement. It's a very simple statement, and it's very profound. And why none of the gospel writers included it, I don't know. In what setting it was spoken, I don't know. I kind of wonder, because it was so apparently widespreadly understood, that maybe Jesus said it a lot, and so the gospel writers just said, he says this all the time, so there's really no reason to put it in there. Maybe he ended every one of his talks with this phrase. Maybe they were just like, oh, here it comes. This is kind of his closing salutation. He says it every time. I don't know. But it's so well known that the apostle Paul, who did not walk with him for three years, didn't hear all this teaching, he was very aware of it. It's so, so well known in the early church that the church in Ephesus, which is a long way, it's today in modern day Turkey, it's a long way away from Jerusalem, Galilee, and Israel. They're aware of it. Jesus had never visited Ephesus, but they're aware of it. That apparently everyone knows about this statement. In fact, most of you have heard this statement. Some of you never understood that Jesus is the one who first said it. So Paul's getting ready to leave Ephesus. They're all crying because they're not going to see him again. He reminds them, I've not been a burden to you. And then he says, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. Like, you remember, you know these words. Let's just call them back to mind. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus said himself. It is more makarios, it's more happy, more lucky, more fortunate, more enviable. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You've heard that phrase. Some of you had no idea Jesus is the one who said it. Jesus says, listen, there's a couple different ways you can do this. You can be discontent in life, filled with greed, going to all kinds of debt, trying to pursue more and more and more to get more happiness. Or there's another path, a path to happiness. And it's about being content, about thinking of others, about not getting but giving, about not being all about mine but about other people. He says, that's, that's the path. That's the path to happiness. That this path to happiness is the path of generosity. And listen, we're not talking about being lazy or not having ambition or not working hard. That's not what we're talking about at all. Something deeper than that. And with this simple, profound truth, 
you really need to ask yourself a question. Again, don't go too quickly to that answer. Ask yourself this question. Do I believe what Jesus said? Wrestle with that. Do I really believe? Do I believe Jesus knows more about the path to happiness? Do I really believe that it is more blessed, there's a happier life in giving than in getting? And then if you land on, if you, if you come up with the answer, no, continue on with your life as is. But if you land on the answer, yes, I do believe Jesus' words, then you need to honestly ask yourself this question, does my life reflect what I say I believe? See, these words of Jesus, they weren't just a teaching. This was the life of Jesus, wasn't it? Greater love is known than this, and he would lay down his life. That's a whole lot more about giving than receiving. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. God so loved the world that he gave. You know, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. God lavished his love on us that we'd be called the sons and daughters of God. This is how Jesus lived. He said, it's not just a, a statement that I want you to retweet. This is how I live my life. And I'm telling you, it's the path to happiness. To be more generous. Now, as a general rule, Americans are more generous than other nations. And I think primarily because we've been blessed more with material stuff than other nations. Statistics would show that religious Americans are more generous than non-religious Americans. But statistics would also show, and well, let's narrow it even more, that Christian Americans, shall we narrow it even more, evangelical Christian Americans, while may, they may be the most generous segment of our society and even of our world, are still not very, very generous at all. Maybe 2 to 4%, depending on which survey you read. And I just want to say that I believe that Jesus' words are true. And that is why without apology, without hesitation, I encourage, I instruct, I implore you to follow the biblical mandate of tithing 10%. I have no problem saying that. And it's not because I get a cut or a part of the gate or I get my commission. None of that. I would say that even if, if we didn't need any of your money at all. Because I believe that Jesus knows the best way to happiness. I believe that Jesus wants the most best way for us in our lives. And I believe that in response to that, we ought to trust and obey him. Now, now let me just set your minds at ease. We are not taking a second offering today. And there are no pledge or commitment cards in your link today. Okay, so just relax. But I believe that at a minimum starting point, according to God's word, according to Jesus, 10% ought to be the starting point. And on top of that, I encourage people, sponsor a child or two in a foreign country. Find a, 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 some ministries or organizations that you believe in. Help them out. Help out with, financially with Engedi, with, with, uh, with Skookum Kids, with Rebound. Help out with the Whatcom County Pregnancy Clinic. Help out with these. That, that we are on this path to happiness when we become generous. So, so here's my challenge to you this week. Ask those questions. Do I believe what Jesus said is true? Does my lifestyle, does it reflect it? 
And then here's the, the, the boots on the ground challenge. This week, and it's going to be a broad challenge, this week, intentionally, if you come to the point where you say, yes, I do believe that Jesus' words are true, this week, intentionally take a step on the path to happiness in the path of generosity. How, where, how much, to whom, I will leave that up to you and the Lord. I'm not going to dictate that. But this whole thing is not just a one-time gift. It's not even just a season of giving. It's a lifestyle that Jesus lived, instructed us, and said, you want to know happiness? You think it's going to be getting more, but the actual true life of happiness, the path of happiness, is giving. All right, so that's, that's my challenge to you. Now, just for a moment, here we go, rationally again, think this through. Cornwall Church is a very generous church. I mean, the, the way that, that we give, the gift of grub is amazing. The Easter offering is unbelievable. What we're able to do in our community and help out with our partners, it's amazing. What if, I mean, think about this. What if every single one of us actually believed these words were true and didn't just give it intellectual, you know, like I concur, but said, and I will live this way? Imagine what would happen with us collectively as a church. Imagine the way we could bless and impact our community. Imagine the way that we could impact this world. Imagine the lives that could be changed. Imagine the way that the light of the good news of Jesus would go out into a dark world at an even greater level. And imagine what would happen to us. That we would be the happiest givers in the world. Oh, how I wish that and long for that and pray for that for us. And it starts here with me. And it starts with you. They would say, Jesus, I believe your words are true. And I want to reflect it in the way that I live. I want to be on the path of happiness. It's a path of generosity. All right, stand as we close in prayer. And as you stand, reach for the wallet of the person next to you. <laughs> Kidding. Jesus, thank you so much that you would love us so much that you would speak this truth to us. Lord, I pray that in this room we would wrestle logically, really think this through. How often are we convinced that more stuff is going to bring us more happiness? Do we really believe that your words are true? Are we willing to live that? God, may we be the most generous people and in turn the most happy people as we follow your example the way that you lived. May it be so, Lord, for your sake and your glory. Praise in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Listen, if you like prayer this morning, our prayer team will be here in the front. would love to pray with you. Have a great afternoon. You're out of here. Go be generous.